So just what is a dad anyway? Just what do fathers do? I'm a little confused on the topic. I mean, it seems like women have a, a more natural idea of what a mom is supposed to do. Us guys are a little lost. If it is wrestling with your kids, tickling, tickling your kids, I think, I'm, I think I've got it covered. If it's more than that, I'm not so sure. Um, my, my wife has said for a long time that part of my job description as a dad was to lose at games. Imagine. I don't believe that's true. I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely hogwash. I, I, I honestly believe you've got you to gotta give them some real-world training. And so, gratefully, when I play basketball with my sons, I still most of the time beat them, and I think I'm actually preparing them for the real world. None of this, you know, winning on a platter kind of deal. But whether we know what uh, dads are, are supposed to do or not, one thing's important. We kind of sense this is true. I think each of us would agree that fathers are important. How do we know? Well, simply take fathers out of the picture, and, and they're severely missed. Their absence is clearly felt. I think of uh, Jamie Foxx, the, the well-known actor, and uh, he's quite a guy. He's been quite acclaimed in his roles and so forth, but, but he never had the relationship with his father that he wanted. His parents lived 28 miles away in Dallas, Texas, but rarely visited him or took note of, of any of his accomplishments. He described it this way. This is what he said. He said, I, I passed for more than 1,000 yards, the first quarterback in my high school to do that. He says, I was making the Dallas morning news, and my father never came to see me play. He says, that was weird. Even to this day, nothing, but that absence makes me angry. It made me want to be something. I said, I'm going to make you look up one day and say, that's my son. Jamie Foxx's relationship, or maybe you'd call it lack of relationship, impacted him tremendously. More than anything, he wanted to hear the words, that's my son. Donald Miller, uh, I love this author, he grew up without a dad, and uh, wrote the, the best-selling Blue Like Jazz, and went on to write a book uh, called To Own a Dragon, Reflections on Growing Up Without a Father. By the way, really encouraging to me that a guy like Donald Miller, who is a successful and, and acclaimed author, actually grew up without a dad and turned out okay. That gives us hope. I, I think in the kingdom of God, uh, we can... <laughs> We can actually see God redeeming and overcoming it. We're told in Scripture that he's father to the fatherless. And so that's a great thing. We don't have to see what, what might happen with their absence. But in that book, Miller explores the value of having a dad and the idea that somehow, somehow our, our lives find their orientation around our, our parents or, or especially, particularly, our fathers. And I take that one step further. Jesus teaches that we find ourselves most at home in the world when we discover a life orientated around our heavenly dad. We're in this uh, three-week series on the Trinity, far too short a time for such a big topic. It is God we're talking about. But in order to honor Father's Day today, I thought I would talk about dads, or more specifically, our heavenly father, our heavenly dad. And uh, be thinking about what difference does it make for us knowing that God is our Father? How should that impact our relationship with Him? What, what, how does that impact our prayer life, how we actually communicate with God? 
I know I was a follower of Jesus for a long, long time before I came to realize that if I wanted to get to know Jesus better, I needed to get to know the Father better. <laughs> because Jesus is the Son of the Father. Jesus lived his whole life. He lived his whole existence orientated towards the Father. At age 12, um, he uh, said to his panicked parents, you know, his mom and his adopted dad, uh, you know, they, they'd lost him. <laughs> And he was in the temple for three days. And he says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And, and those words would, would really shape the, the rest of his ministry. Uh, to his disciples by a, a well in Samaria, he said, my food is to do the will of, of him who sent me, my, my dad. And Jesus would say again and again, you, you read John, he says, I, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. Uh, John 5, 19, he says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. You, you, you see, the more we get to know Jesus as son, the more we'll discover his passion to reveal to us his father because Jesus loves his father. And as that scripture says, the, the father loves the son. There were three times during uh, Jesus' ministry where kind of the heavens opened and, and the voice, a voice broke out from heaven, the father saying these words of love and affirmation over, <laughs> uh, over, over Jesus. And we spoke about Jesus' baptism last week and, and where, where the father's voice spoke those profound words. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's the words Jamie, Jamie Foxx wanted to hear. That's my boy. That's my son. And I love him. It was as if the father was saying, what you're doing, who you are, what you're all about, uh, it makes me so happy. It just thrills me. I, I mean, I, and I, I can relate to that now as a, as a dad. I, I, I've had moments in my experience as a dad where I literally, you know that phrase, bursting with, with pride? I felt like I was going to burst with pride over some of the seasons with my boys. We know from Scripture that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And Jesus the Son's greatest desire is to explain the Father to us so that, that you and I can, can too love the Father and, and delight in the Father, and we can learn to trust the Father like He trusts the Father. And, and this morning we... We want, as we seek to, to gain some clarity on, on what it means to be with this and to grow into this relationship with this three-in-one God, knowing God as our Father will be a key to, to that journey. J.I. Packer, a renowned theologian, wrote the classic book, Knowing God. He actually lives in Vancouver, which is kind of cool. We have one of the, the world's most well-known theologians right in our backyard here. But he said this in, in Knowing God, he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, at having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Why does this matter so much? Why does this matter to us? Because our, our perception of, of the Father and His character will either help us or hinder us when it comes to gaining intimacy with God. 
So what is the father like? Well, in our text this morning, we, we find in Luke 11, Jesus opens our eyes to a specific characteristic of the father. Let's look at the scripture. It's found in Luke 11. Uh, we'll be looking at 1 to 13. We've loaned our Bibles back there behind the dad's root beer. And, uh, but would you join me, in, and we're going to read the scripture. Would you stand, uh, if you're able, for the reading of God's word? Luke tells us that one day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation." Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and the the children are with me in bed. I can't give up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness or persistence, He will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers? If your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Lord, open our eyes to your truth today, we ask. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen. Please have a seat. Um, Lord, teach us to pray. Many of you would know that that's the only thing the disciples ever asked to be taught. No teach us to lead, no teach us to cast out demons or, or do great deeds or heal. Teach us to pray. Now why is that? I, I believe it's because the disciples saw that Jesus' teaching, his healing, and his leadership flow, flowed out of his relationship with his Father. And they could somehow see in a tangible way that that Jesus' relationship to his father was facilitated by prayer. And so they said, teach us to pray. So Jesus does two things. He he leads them in this little prayer. For you uh, technique-oriented types, Jesus gives you a brief how-to, kind of a do-it-yourself manual on prayer. And I don't know about you, I love the Lord's Prayer. It's such a great and helpful guide to lead us into prayer. Um, I, I believe in those few phrases that we have, you pray just about everything that you need to pray, it's contained right there. And oftentimes in the morning as I drive my kids to school, if we, if we don't pray kind of a spontaneous prayer, at very least we will pray together the Lord's Prayer. It's been a great help, and I, I imagine it would be a great help to you in your journey as well. But the second thing Jesus does is he tells a parable. 
It's this little story called The Friend at Midnight. And the parable is there to encourage us and to help us to pray. One, one commentator says the story is there to help us want to pray. And, and when you read that story, if you feel like you want to pray, well, it's supposed to actually make you feel that way. And the gist of the parable is, is well known. Uh, a friend comes in from out of town, but the host's cupboards are bare. There's no food in the house. So he goes over to his neighbor, and he knocks on the door, and he asks for bread, and the neighbor refuses him. But because of the asking, finally the neighbor gets out bread and gives the guy whatever he asks for. He gives him what he needs. And, and the typical interpretation of the parable is, is that it's all about the one who's asking, but not about the one who's being asked. Uh, the, the typical interpretation of the parable is really that it's about persistence in, in prayer, like a child that asks mom for something. And mom says no. And what does that child do? Does, do they receive that no? Absolutely not. They go to dad. <laughs> and uh, if dad says no, they just keep on asking dad because they know dads usually can get worn down. And they just keep on asking. They keep on knocking. And, and eventually, what does dad do? Dad says, sure. Yeah. Get off my back, would you, kid? And uh, gives him whatever he wants, right? That's, that's kind of how we in, in, in envision this story. It's called wearing down the opposition. And generally, it's a fairly successful human tactic. Uh, professor and, and pastor author Daryl Johnson uh, suggests this, this typical interpretation is off the mark. It, it's interpreted more from a Western perspective than from a, a Middle Eastern context. And you've got to understand, and, and we need to understand this in, in general when reading the New Testament, that it's set in a Middle Eastern context. And it's really helpful when we want to understand what is it that this particular parable is saying. And so looking at this, this passage from an Eastern perspective, Daryl Johnson argues that this parable is not about the man asking for bread, and it's not about persistence in praying. So what is it about? Let me make a couple of observations, which I'm indebted to, to Professor Johnson for. Verse 5 to 7. Verse, verse 5 begins with this phrase, suppose one of you has a friend. In English, that phrase does not, it comes across as a statement. It does not come across as a question. In the original language, it would have come across as a question. It would have been more along the lines of, can you imagine, you know, if you had a friend that needed bread and you asked for them for bread, you know, would they give it to you? It's, it's sort of along those kinds of that. Which of you can imagine that? You asked for bread and they didn't want to give it to you. The cultural answer in that culture would be none of us could imagine that. Listeners of Jesus could never imagine hearing from a neighbor in your village, go away, I can't get up. Now let me say this, for those of you who grew up in North America, we can imagine this. <laughs> I mean, I, I hear from newcomers to Canada a lot that they're so frustrated by the cocoons we have, the the drawbridge we have, which is called garage door openers, where you drive in, you close it, you're in your house, and then you're there. And then some of us, we're, we're brave enough to actually have signs on our doors that say what? Let's look at the screen. No soliciting. I don't like you. I'm not voting for you. I'm not buying from you. I don't need a vacuum. I am armed and waiting for you. This is more of an American posting, I think. You are on private property, right? We, we can imagine that. We're pretty individualistic here. We're pretty protective of ourselves. We can imagine turning someone down in that kind of instance, but not in the Middle East. This would have been impossible. Why? 
Well, the, the cultural dynamics are, are huge here. In the Middle East, they have two great cultural values. One is hospitality, and the second one is avoidance of shame. Those are the two. They, both of these kind of work themselves out in this particular story. Hospitality. It, it's just a, a huge value in that culture. And, and I got to say, I'm married into an Eastern culture, and I love that about your, those of you who are here that grew up in the, that part of the world, Asia, or wherever it might be. I, I love that about you, that hospitality side of, of, of your lives. In fact, I, I had the privilege of visiting the Middle East, and uh, I spent three days, three very memorable days, where it was just me and a Jordanian driver driving through Jordan. Our, our destination was Petra and, and Mount Nebo, where, where Moses looked into the promised land, and I visited those places. It was really cool. I had one of the longest days of my life. It felt like we were up at dawn and uh, went to Petra, and then my driver uh, took me to my hotel in in Amman, the capital city of Jordan, uh, that evening. And I arrived there, and he felt, but you could tell he felt bad dropping me off by myself, a foreigner in his country, dropping me off at a hotel. And uh, and so he said, listen, I'm I'm going to a wedding tonight. Come along. You know, like, we don't say that here. We got, ex- like, we got RSVPs, we got seats, and this guy's like, we crash weddings here all the time. They'll never refuse you. You're my guest, right? And, and I actually, it's kind of my one little regret that I didn't actually go to that wedding because it would have been so cool. So instead, I wandered the streets of Amman that night by myself. I've never done anything more dangerous, maybe stupid, but more exciting in my life. It was good. What was I talking about? Hospitality. <laughs> Sorry, uh, get me talking about vacation, and I'm, I'm already there. Um, hospitality, I, I love uh, the whole opening, opening homes, uh, providing food. One of the rules of Eastern hospitality is they have to put more food in front of you than you can eat, right? And a little tip here. They actually, it's actually an insult, if you're a guest, to not take seconds, and so the pointer is, don't pack your plate quite full the first time. You gotta, you gotta have more or you're insulting your, your host, right? Is that true? Yeah, it's great. Um, and there's all, this aspect uh, of hospitality that plays this, this key part in the story. For the guest who comes at midnight, they are not just a guest of the, the home that they're visiting. They, they'd be considered the, a guest of the entire village. Everyone in the community would be obliged, would feel obliged to take care of the guest. It's just this powerful cultural value. You know, if you were to visit Jamaica or Philippines or India or Thailand or any of those places, Sri Lanka, uh, someone in that country would never say, welcome to my country. They would say, welcome to our country. They're powerfully communally oriented. They've got the sense of communal community responsibility. It's a big, big value there. And, and so the man inside the house who doesn't want to get up and help, he'd know that he was obligated to get up and help this, feed this guest. This guest would really be as much his guest as it was the actual host. That's the, the hospitality aspect that's going on in this story. The second prominent cultural value that's alive in this story is that whole avoidance of shame. The, the word in verse 8 is the Greek word anodyne, and it's usually translated persistence. Yet because of the man's persistence, he will get up and give as much as he needs. Well, the word anodyne really actually wasn't given the meaning persistence till kind of well into the fourth century. So 
In early biblical days, it likely meant something slightly different. Commentators tell us that it likely meant something along the lines of shameless or to be without shame. Or as the New American Standard Bible says, there's a little note at the bottom. It says literally shameless. And so this idea that we have as persistence really has this whole idea of of persistent or, or avoidance of shame. You see, in the Middle East, shame is a very negative quality. And on the other hand, shamelessness is a very positive quality. And, and Middle Eastern uh, contexts are shame-based cultures. They're, the culture is really ruled by shame. Shame in the sense of not wanting to, to lose face. Sense of not wanting to damage one's reputation. You do everything that you can do to avoid bringing shame on your family or shame on your name. It's one of the reasons that divorce rates are lower in those countries. If you got divorced, it would bring shame not just on you, not just on your family, it would bring shame on the entire village. That's why in some countries it's hard to become a Christian because you bring shame on your family. In fact, I've, I've recently become friends with uh, a new Christian, just a, a Christian for a couple years. She's a Muslim convert. She lives here in Coquitlam, but she's uh, not told her parents yet that she's a believer. <laughs> Because she says, the consequences, I'm not so sure. In fact, Angel, my wife, has, has some uh, ancestors back in the eight, 19th century who came to Christ, uh, visiting missionaries, led, led them to the Lord. We visited their graveside when we were in Sri Lanka last year. These, these individuals who their family had a funeral when they came to Christ. Because it was like a, a great shame on the family. And, and so uh, Angel's ancestors who had a different name, their, their name got changed to Curtis which was the name of this missionary family who led them to Jesus. That's the, the, the power of, of shame in those cultures, how much weight it actually carries. It's, it's beyond what I think a Westerner like me can, can even hope to understand. Shamelessness means avoiding shame at all costs. We, we Westerners don't get this very well. We, we show this a lot, I think, in our foreign policy, but it's a, a huge issue for Asians. And it helps us understand this passage. How does this quality to a, a, apply to the man who's asking his neighbor for bread? I mean, why can he shamelessly ask his neighbor for bread? Well, because shamelessness doesn't actually apply to the asker. That quality of shamelessness actually it, it, it applies to the man inside. You could really read this verse as, but because of the man inside's shamelessness, he will get up and give as much as he needs. The story is less about the asker and more about the one being asked. Even if the guy inside hates the guy outside, he will get up and he will give him as much as he needs because he, he doesn't want the story to go around the village the next morning that, that he didn't extend hospitality. There, there, there's really something deeper going on here than, than friendship and, and love. You know, it's shame. I'm not going to damage my reputation. I'm not going to lose face. I'm not going to hear my neighbors say to me tomorrow morning, why didn't you help? Shame on you. Even if the man hates his neighbor, the man will get up and give bread because he doesn't want to damage his reputation or do damage to his name. And so when it comes to prayer, this parable is not so much about the one who asks but it's the one who we ask. It's about God the Father. When you pray, Jesus said early in the passage, say, our Father, 
hallowed be your name or, or honor your name. The parable teaches that the Father avoids shame. Or more positively, God the Father always acts in ways that honors his name. He, he'll never do anything to shame his name. He is shameless, or, or he has this quality of shamelessness. Well, what is his name? We know he goes by many names, uh, you know, Father, Healer, Provider, uh, Sovereign, Lord, all those things, Ancient of Days. But of all his names, Yahweh is the name above all names. It's the name that, that he gave Moses when Moses was at the burning bush. And, and he said, I am who I am, which, which in other words means I am the God with you and for you. That's what I am, what I am means. And he's, he's basically saying, I, I will be your God, and you will be my, my people. All that I am, all that I have, I place at your disposal. And, and Jesus is telling us that, that God will honor his name. And, and when you enter into a relationship with, with Jesus, you are part of God's family. And, and God makes a promise to you. In effect, he says, I am the God with you and, and for you. Jesus is saying... I don't want the rumor going around that the Father hasn't done what he has promised he will do. He's, he's going to do it. Moses uh, understood this. There's this great little interaction between Moses and, and God in, in Exodus 32. And God basically is so frustrated with this stiff-necked, disobedient, rebellious people that he, he kind of expresses that frustration to Moses. He says, I've had it. I'm done with them. I'm done with this Israel project, and I'm going to go start something new. I'm going to have another people for myself. I'm finished with them. And, and Moses, very insightful, he's speaking in a shame culture. What does he say? He says, well, well Father, well, God, what are the Egyptians going to think about that? <laughs> you know, what are the other nations going to think about what you might do? You're, you're supposed to be the God who, who is, is with us and, and for us. So Mo Moses got that. What does God do? He changes his mind, obviously. David understood this about God in, in Psalm 25. It says, For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my sin, though it is great. That's Psalm 23. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In, in Ezekiel 36, where, where Ezekiel, our, our God talks about Israel being brought back from captivity, the Lord says, I will restore you, I will cleanse you, I will, will free you. Why? For the sake of my name. Jesus' disciples were, were asking about prayer. Jesus then shares this story which was meant to give them such an assurance in their prayers. And it's meant to give us such confidence and assurance in our prayers. Yes, the Father loves us. Yes, he is a good, good Father. But even if he didn't love us, he loves his name. He'll never bring shame on his name. And he's there with you and for you, and he'll never shame that. In, in Daryl Johnson's words, God's commitment to his name translates into his commitment to you and to his people. And it really helps us understand the rest of Luke chapter 11. In verse uh, 9, Jesus asks, says, ask, seek, and knock. Why is that? Uh, I used to think it was kind of back to this whole idea of how we talk to our parents and ask for things. 
You know, beg, 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 and beg some more, and eventually, you know, you'll, you'll get the answer you want. Uh, you know, and, and, and the question is, is <laughs> and so I think we can think of this as asking, seeking, and knocking as persisting and wearing God down. You know, we finally get the answer we want. That's not it at all. It's an assurance. Something always happens when you ask, seek, and knock. The phrase here is really keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Why? To wear God down? No. Verse 10, when you ask, you receive. When you seek, you will find. When you knock, the door will be opened. Something always, always, always happens when we pray. What happens when we pray? Mother Teresa put it this way. She says, when we pray, we are expanding our capacity to receive. When we pray, we're expanding, we're growing our ability, our capacity to actually receive. Well, receive what? Receive God. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what we're told in verse 13. What does God want to give us more than anything? Himself, the Holy Spirit. How much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who are asking? It means God will give himself to those who are asking, just asking for anything. When you pray, you receive. I don't know if any of you have seen the, the great film Shadowlands. Uh, it's the portrayal of, of a portion of C.S. Lewis's life. Uh, it's a movie I've seen several times, and it makes me cry every time. I'm a weeper when it comes to some films. And, and in this particular film, C.S. Lewis uh, is just recently married. He's known as Jack in the story. That's what he was called by his friends. And Jack had just newly been married, and his wife has been diagnosed with cancer. She's dying of cancer. And a friend asks Jack, why do you pray? And Jack's response, he confesses, it doesn't change me. I mean, it doesn't change God, it changes me. My prayers don't change God, it changes me. Do you see how, how Trinitarian this whole passage has been? I mean, the disciples say, teach us to pray which was really them asking, teach us to connect with God like we see you connecting with God, with the way we see you connecting with the Father, Jesus. We want to do that. We want to in on that relationship. And Jesus goes on to say, when, when you pray, pray our Father. And, and Jesus goes on to illustrate, I, I want you to know this about the Father. He's good. He's shameless. And, and for the sake of his name, he will never turn you away. Jesus is really saying, you can trust the Father. He'll give you exactly what you need. And then when we ask and seek and knock, what does God the Father do? He gives us the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? I love how Romans 8 describes what the Spirit does in a believer's life. Listen to this. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves or slaves again to fear. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Daddy or Abba or Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that, that we are God's children. I, I think it's awesome that part of this, the Spirit's mission in our lives is to tell you of God's love for you. It's to, to confirm, to testify, to bear witness to God's delight in you that God cares for you, that you're the apple of God's eyes, that you're his chosen child. And folks, I, I don't know about you, but I kind of know this truth in my head, but 
for many of us, we need to, to know this truth in our hearts. The, the Holy Spirit wants this truth to come alive in you and alive in me. Thomas Goodwin was a uh, pastor in the 17th century. He wrote that one day he saw a father and young son walking along the road together. And at one point, the father stopped and, and grabbed hold of his son and lifted him in the air and embraced him and kissed him and uh, told him how much he loved him. And then he set him down again. And I mean, it seems like an unusual story from the 17th century, but, but his pastor, reflecting on what he had seen of this father and son, he said, was the little boy more a son in the father's arms than he was on the street? Objectively and legally, there was no difference, but subjectively and experientially, there was all the difference in the world. In his father's arms, the boy was experiencing his sonship. Uh, we had an opportunity for prayer during our communion time, as we do, and we offer prayer after every service, and we know that many of you come to church on Sunday mornings with needs, and we want to pray, and we believe God answers prayer. And we pray in the week, we pray at home, our elders pray, we pray in all kinds of ways, all kinds of settings, small groups, and so on, and we want to challenge you to keep on praying, keep on asking. But it's interesting, God does answer prayer, but more than any other answer to any prayer we might get. The Holy Spirit wants you to know first and foremost who you are. He wants you to know who you are. That you're a child of the Most High God. That you're His, his beloved daughter. That you are His beloved son. And so that you can... You can uh, know that your spirit can bear witness to or agree with God's spirit. And, and you can kind of say to yourself, as, as it was put by someone, if someone as all-powerful as that loves me like this, delights in me, has gone to such, such extravagant lengths to save me, he, if he says he'll never let me go and he's going he's gonna to glorify me and he's going to protect me and he's going to perfect me and he's going to take everything bad that's ever happened out of my life eventually, I'm going to be entirely healed by him. If that's all true, why am I afraid? Why am I so worried all the time and anxious? Pastor Timothy Keller puts it this way. I love how he phrases it. He says that the Spirit gives you joyful fearlessness. Got to tell you, folks, I'm going to pray that for you, that God would give you joyful fearlessness. I love that. By making you more aware of reality, the Spirit assures you that you are the child of the only one whose opinion and power matters. He loves you to the stars, and He never will let you go. So, Hillside, can you imagine a man going to his neighbor and asking for bread? and being turned away. Can you imagine that? No way. Can you imagine going to the Father in the name of the Son who He loves and asking for more of the power or cleansing or joy or presence of the Holy Spirit and being told to go away? No. It's impossible. Jesus says the Father will get up and give you as much of Himself as you need. So let me ask you this morning, what do you need of God today? I, I, I can't promise you a BMW or a, a trip to Maui, even though that's on some of our wish lists, isn't it? 
What of God, what of God do you need today in your life, you know, for yourself, for your family, or for your marriage, or for your work, or for your life? What, what of God do you need today in order to love your children, or to love your spouse, or to love your world? Even if the Father doesn't love you, and I'll tell you folks, the, the Father loves you like you've never been loved. Nobody loves you like the Father. But even if the Father does not love you, He is without shame, and He will get up, and He will give you as much of Himself as you need. Jesse's going to come, and, uh, and they're going to sing a song. But before we listen to their song, we're just going to have some time of reflection while they sing. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to come and, and know and love and trust the Father like you love and know and trust the Father. Thank you, Lord, that when we come to the Father, when we ask and when we seek and when we knock, you promise us that we will receive and we will find and doors will be opened. And what you give us most is your Holy Spirit. And I, I sense this morning that you want to remind us again that your, your Spirit's speaking to our spirit, that, that we are children of God, that we have a good, good Father. Lord, awaken us to this reality today that we might grow in our our relationship with you, that we might, might come to know ourselves predominantly as children of the Most High God, who loves us to the stars. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're
I sense if, uh, if there's those of you who actually sent, believe that the Christian life is somehow about getting more religious or ritualistic or legalistic or all those kind of things. What Jesse just sang about is, is the call deeper into love. That's what God wants for each of us is to, to move deeper into God's love for us, that perfect love, love we were meant to receive, meant, meant to experience uh, and we won't feel right in the world. We won't feel at home in the world unless we're tied into his love for us. Why don't you just close your eyes and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just listen to the Heavenly Father just for a few seconds. Just quiet your heart and go, Father, speak to me. I sense he wants to say something to you very personal today. 
what I sense him wanting to speak to you is that you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. You're my child. With you, I am well pleased. That's my girl. That's my boy. Love him. Receive this benediction. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the great, great love of God the Father be with you all. Amen. We're going to celebrate Father's Day today with donuts. The guys got root beer earlier. Everybody gets Tim Horton donuts, a very Canadian Father's Day kind of thing to do, don't you think? I think so. So please, uh, if you'd like prayer today, please come on up to the front. Feel, feel free. We'd love to pray with you. And I am guaranteed God will meet you. Uh, donuts are back there. Coffee's that way. Uh, make sure you greet a, a friend today. And uh, shout out to Jesse. Where's Jesse? Wasn't that good today? Come here, come here, come here. Jesse, uh, just so you know, it, she, she came to Hillside a year ago and came on our staff in a, in a very part-time way, but she's working as our middle school coordinator. And Jesse actually is gone for the summer. She's coming back in September. She's actually bringing reinforcements. She's bringing her brother to come live in the Tri-Cities with her. And Jesse's heading, uh, we would have thought home, which is like West Bank, West Kelowna, yep. but she's actually going to visit her grandparents and apparently she can get a part-time job working, full-time job, working in her grandparents' New York town, making American dollars. And apparently, it, like, like, that's like worth much more than us, our Canadian dollars. I don't know. So she'll come back a millionaire. And, uh, but uh, why don't we pray for her real quick, shall we? This God, we thank you for the gift she's been to us and to our church, even to taste her, her love for you this morning in, in, in worship and in hosting and singing at the end there, that great song. But Lord, we love the way she pours into our middle schoolers. And uh, we, we love her and we pray that you'd bless her and keep her and we send her with great joy, anticipating uh, a, a good return with stories of your faithfulness in her life. And so bless her, Lord, in every way. And we send her off and, and, uh, and are excited about what you're gonna do in her life this summer and in her family and all those things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you. All right, now you can have your donuts. <laughs>